Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading House Tenant Protection Bills Advance to an Uphill Battle in the Senate by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading After East High Shooting, Armed Police are Temporarily Headed Back to DPS High Schools. The debate to keep them there is underway by Kyle Harris and Desiree Matherin. And Cleo Parker Robinson Among Those Honored at White House with National Medal of the Arts by Eden Lane. From Westward, I'll be reading, Colorado Gig Drivers Are Ditching Uber and Lyft to Form a New Rideshare App, by Katie Cheshire, and Pinkerton Security Guards Coming Back to Denver, by Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. House Tenant Protection Bills Advance to an Uphill Battle in the Senate, by Robert Davis. Lawmakers in the Colorado House of Representatives have introduced several bills that seek to strengthen legal protections for renters, but the bills face an uphill battle now that they are moving on to the Senate. Colorado has historically been a landlord-friendly state because landlords can set their own notice requirements for entering their property, and there are few restrictions on evicting tenants, and there are no rent control laws on the books. Lawmakers are looking to provide more protections for renters as about 52% of Colorado renters are paying more than the recommended 30% of their income on rent and utilities, according to the National Low Income Housing Coalition. One bill that lawmakers are hoping to pass would repeal Colorado statutes that prohibit local governments from adopting rent control measures. House Bill 231115 passed the House with almost two-thirds of the body supporting it, but is now being heard by a chamber where Democrats have a narrower majority. Governor Jared Polis and some members of the Democrat caucus have expressed skepticism about the bill. Senate President Steve Fenberg, Democrat Boulder, told Colorado Public Radio on March 15th that he wanted to hear from local community members as well as private developers, nonprofit home builders, people who are trying to solve the affordable housing crisis in Colorado and how this could impact their work. Fenberg asked that a similar bill be laid over in 2019, which effectively killed its chances of being passed, the Denver Post reported. Senator Dylan Roberts, Democrat Eagle, also told CPR that he is wary of passing any bill that could disincentivize building and disincentivize people from offering housing in the long-term rental market. HB 231115 is being sponsored by Democrat representatives Javier Mabry of Denver and Elizabeth Velasco of Glenwood Springs and Senator Robert Rodriguez of Denver. During a hearing in the House Transportation, Housing, and Local Government Committee on February 15th, Velasco described the bill as one that will help essential workers like firefighters and teachers afford to live near their jobs. People need relief immediately, and far more people need relief than we currently have plans to help, Velasco said. Another bill heading to the Senate, House Bill 231171, 
would require landlords to show just cause before evicting a tenant. The bill defines just cause as when tenants fail to pay rent or allow a landlord entry to their property after receiving notice. Landlords may also have to pay their tenants at least two months rent to help them relocate in instances where major building renovations are needed, according to the bill. Representative Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez, Democrat Denver, told the House Transportation, Housing, and Local Government Committee on March 1st that the bill will establish clear guidelines regarding when tenants can be evicted, something that Colorado law currently lacks. Just cause eviction legislation is the best way to prevent first-time homelessness, keep families housed, and put less pressure on the system, Gonzalez Gutierrez told the committee. However, the bill is almost certain to face full-throated Republican opposition. Michael Fields, president of Advance Colorado, a Republican think tank, described HB 1171 in a press release as a bill that disregards private property rights and further drives up the regulatory cost of housing in Colorado. Democrats are also trying to make Colorado the first state to give local governments the ability to purchase multifamily properties before they hit the open market, also known as the right of first refusal. However, House Bill 231190 does not apply to any sale, transfer, or conveyance of residential property made to family members, trusts, or their beneficiaries, or are pursuant to a claim of eminent domain, according to the bill's text. Representative Andrew Bosenecker, Democrat Fort Collins, told Colorado Newsline that, that the bill will level the playing field for municipalities and counties to pervert preserve affordable housing units before they are scooped up by developers or investors. Opponents of the bill argue that the bill is overly broad and counterproductive to its intended goal of creating more affordable housing. The whole concept of stopping the sale so local governments can figure out if they might want to buy the property is problematic, Andrew Hamrick, senior vice president of government affairs for the Apartment Association of Metro Denver, told Colorado Newsline. No matter how you look at it, this is billions of dollars of theft from existing Colorado property owners to give it to local governments. The next two articles are from Denverite. After East High shooting, armed police are temporarily headed back to DPS high schools. The debate to keep them there is underway, by Kyle Harris and Desiree Matherin. In 2019, Denver Public Schools safety officials handcuffed a seven-year-old at a Green Valley Ranch Elementary School. Police pointed a gun at a teacher during a search at a Rise Up Community School in 2018, prompting students to stop attending class as they didn't feel safe. Tools like metal detectors gave officers the chance to search a student's belongings and catch them for small infractions that sometimes led to arrests or worse. Black and Latino children were statistically the most likely to face consequences, ranging from tickets to arrests, and so just-minded parents and advocates successfully pushed to remove those officers from schools in 2020, arguing that police were not actually keeping kids safe in the classroom. But after Wednesday, when a 17-year-old East High School student who had a previous weapons charge and had been expelled from Cherry Creek's Overland High, shot two deans at East High School and later killed himself, parents, students, and educators are asking how officials can keep them safe while at school. 
Some want armed officers and other strict security measures back in school hallways. Others, who remember why officers were removed in the first place, think putting them back in classrooms would be short-sighted and won't solve the greater issue at hand. Still, on Thursday, the Denver School Board moved forward and unanimously agreed to allow as many as two armed police officers at high schools across the city in light of the shooting. Board members tasked DPS Superintendent Alex Marrero to work with Mayor Michael Hancock to provide external funding for the officers, as well as mental health professionals. Is it the fix? We don't know, Marrero said. We know that going back to extremes isn't the solution, but this is the right way forward. The move kicks off what is sure to become a heated debate over the next few months about how to keep students safe in Denver classrooms, and what those plans will actually include, like armed officers, metal detectors, and mental health resources. East High has experienced multiple occurrences of gun violence this year. In February, 16-year-old Luis Garcia was shot outside the school. He died from his wounds in early March, which led to student protests calling for gun safety legislation from lawmakers. They did so again Thursday. Fears remain high that students are simply not safe, and the latest debate over school resource officers shows a clear split on whether armed officers are the solution or another problem. The removal of officers was not a decision made lightly, but it was one many saw as necessary to keep kids from negative police interactions after the murder of George Floyd in 2020. The concern for many reform-minded parents and advocates is that the return of officers will lead to more of what was seen in the past. Between 2014 and 2019, in-school officers had ticketed and arrested more than 4,500 students. Of those, 80% were black and Latino, according to data from Padres y Jovenes, a group that spends decades trying to get cops out of schools and reform disciplinary practices. The statistics from the activist group were damning evidence that the Denver public school system was mired in systemic racism and criminalizing students of color. When people talk about SROs and police, I get it, said Tran Nguyen Wills, an East High parent. For me, it is a sense of safety. But it's also just a band-aid, and America is really good at putting on band-aids for everything. We took out the SROs and police, but we never put something else in place. There are things we could have done to replace that false sense of security we have with police and SROs. We saw what happened in Uvalde, where they had SROs and they had militarized police, and children still died. Some argue that interactions with officers in schools funneled black and brown youth through the school to prison pipeline or led to negative interactions with police. I look at some former students who are incarcerated and you can see where the pipeline, pipeline to jail began, said Manuel Aragon, a parent of Denver Public Schools children who work in the school district for 11 years. It began with truancy tickets, or these things that were overly policed because we live in a society that heavily polices black and brown bodies and for the optics of safety rather than for actual safety. In the summer of 2020, Denver was engulfed in protests against the murder of George Floyd and other high-profile cases of law enforcement killings of unarmed black people. For many, trust in all law enforcement had been broken. 
Police, even school resource officers who had been beloved in certain schools, were widely viewed as dangerous. Parents, students, and advocates alike made it clear, get the cops out of the schools before they kill someone. The Denver Public School Board read the research. The members listened to the advocates and families who experienced police in schools criminalizing their children. In 2020, the school board decided to cut its contract with the Denver Police Department. Part of the reasoning for this decision is the belief that the close proximity of law enforcement to students on campuses directly contributes to the school-to-prison pipeline, the district posted online. Studies show that black and brown students arrested for minor school infractions are more likely to end up in the adult criminal system, entrenching the school-to-prison pipeline. Our commitment to student safety has not changed, the board wrote. There's nothing more important than all of our students feeling safe, cared for, and protected in our schools. Our students need to trust the adults who are on our campuses with them. As we make this gradual transition, we will work closely with school leaders, staff, parents and families, and students in the coming weeks to understand and prioritize their needs to ensure the safety of students, staff, and communities. After Wednesday's shooting, East students rallied at the Capitol again, begging for gun reform. Meanwhile, the DPS board was at work in a closed meeting planning to bring armed officers back into high schools. DPS board president Chotol Gaitan, Vice President Antoy M. Anderson, and board member Kerry Olson read off a memorandum detailing their plan for the rest of the school year. Two armed officers and two mental health professionals will be at all DPS high schools until June 30th. The board is requiring that the officers be trained in the use of firearms, de-escalation techniques, policing in a school environment, knowledgeable of the school community they intend to serve, and skilled in community policing. During this time, board members have tasked Marrero with creating a systemic, long-term safety operational plan that engages with community members. The board also requests that Marrero provide monthly data updates on ticketing and arrests and that he ensures school staff aren't using the officers for disciplinary issues. His deadline for the safety plan is June 30, 2023. Marrero put the blame for recent violence on himself and the school board and said they had failed the 17-year-old shooting suspect. These events should not have happened on my watch or on this board's watch, he wrote in a memo to the board after the shooting. Aragon, Wynn Wills, and former DPS teacher Tim Hernandez believe Marrero and the board are having a knee-jerk reaction to the shootings. Instead of armed officers, they believe the school should invest in more mental health resources. Throwing resources into a system that exists to scare students out of violence is not going to do anything for us, Hernandez said. I don't believe that we scare violence out of community. I think we have to invest it out, and I think that we invest it out through mental health support and school culture. But in the immediate aftermath of the East High shooting, parents picking up their kids swarmed Denver Police Chief Ron Thomas, Mayor Michael Hancock, and Marrero, as they gave remarks to the press. Leaders, stand up, a parent yelled. Do something about it, another demanded. There will be two officers in the school for the remainder of the school year, Thomas said. That's not enough, multiple parents yelled, with some clamoring for armed police to return to the hallways. 
They need to do better policing in the city, more especially at the schools, the high schools, because the kids are getting hold of guns and the violence needs to stop, said Kowali Selly, the parent of a first-year student at East. The only way that can be stopped is when we have better policing in the city. Board members are expecting Marrero to engage with community members to decide a long-term solution for student safety, but when Wills doubts DPS will actually follow through. She said Thursday's temporary decision itself wasn't discussed with parents, and that's typical of DPS. They're not asking us anything. I get emails, and they're just like, this is what we're doing. Too bad, when Wills said. I'm literally a legacy parent. I have dealt with this for so long, and I've never been communicated to in a way where I felt like I was being heard or seen. DPS called for a mental health day on Friday when the Denver Classroom Teachers Association and the Colorado Education Association are planning a rally at the Capitol for gun reform. Spring break is also on the horizon. Aragon says DPS should have utilized the time off to thoroughly think about the effects of adding armed officers back into school. There's an opportunity for Marrero as a leader to hold some space for thoughtful community dialogue, Aragon said. That's been one of the constant refrains and constant issues with him is that opportunities where the community has asked and could benefit from thoughtful community dialogue, the community kind of gets steamrolled and the decisions can feel authoritarian. Cleo Parker Robinson among those honored at White House with National Medal of the Arts by Eden Lane. Denver dance pioneer Cleo Parker Robinson was part of a group awarded a National Medal of the Arts at the White House this week. Parker Robinson and her group, the International Association of Blacks in Dance, received the award from President Biden. Cleo Parker Robinson has become an iconic figure in Colorado arts. She founded the Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Ensemble and serves as its executive creative director. In 1989, she was inducted into the Colorado Women's Hall of Fame, and in 1999, President Clinton appointed her to serve on the National Council of the Arts. The Kennedy Center's Masters of African American Choreographers series awarded her the center's highest honor, the Medal of Honor, in 2005. The IABD traces its roots back to 1988 before it formalized into an association in 1990. Today, the International Association of Blacks in Dance preserves and promotes dance by people of African ancestry or origin and works to increase opportunities for those artists. Following the White House ceremony and celebrations, Parker Robinson said she was honored to be among those recognized. Oh, it was thrilling. I got really teary-eyed. I think to stop and really realize that the nation would see that dance is important and that it is to be recognized, and that what we had been doing with the International Association of Blacks and Dance had a really significant impact on, not only in our country, but across all borders, she said. It's global. Parker Robinson said she felt proud, both to be there and to help change things in America. And even though we think about all the things that we have not accomplished yet, and maybe some of the trauma from our history, we need some change, Parker Robinson said. We need it. Our America has changed from our first beginnings. And I think that it was wonderful to see and feel the welcoming of the change as if it's not intimidating. 
Cleo Parker Robinson and the four other IABD co-founders were honored alongside Bruce Springsteen, Gladys Knight, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and others. The following articles are from Westward. Colorado gig drivers are ditching Uber and Lyft to form a new rideshare app by Katie Cheshire. For years, Uber and Lyft have dominated the rideshare game. But recently, drivers have noticed that the companies aren't as transparent as they should be, and they're doing something about it. Now, rather than being driven up a wall, gig workers are taking control of their careers and futures by forming a driver's cooperative, a new rideshare app owned and operated by the mile-high motorists themselves. Drivers are desperate right now, says Min Soon Ji, the executive director of the Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center, which is helping the drivers create the co-op. Commission used to be up to 65%. Right now, it's as low as 25%. Workers are really fed up with the way that Uber and Lyft are treating them. In 2022, drivers formed Colorado Independent Drivers United, a union for rideshare, delivery, pedicab, taxi, and limousine drivers, asking that rideshare companies take no more than 25% of the profits from each ride or delivery, share more information about jobs with drivers before they take them, and stop deactivating drivers without giving them an explanation as to why they were deactivated. G was a professor at the University of Colorado studying how to protect workers, and particularly gig workers, before joining RMEOC to help create the driver's co-op. She's well aware of the issues that caused drivers to unionize and hopes that a co-op can help too. The move would ultimately allow workers to make decisions about management, pay, and transparency themselves. A driver's co-op is the most innovative solution that we have right now, Xi says. RMEOC Headquartered in Denver, has existed since 2012 with the goal of converting companies to employee-owned models to improve economic vitality. In April of 2022, it launched a program aimed at incubating new employee-owned businesses. The driver's co-op will be the very first one. The overall goal will be to help start the rideshare company by assisting the drivers in generating capital educating them about how to run an employee-owned business, and advocating for legal changes to help the company thrive. If the driver's co-op reaches its membership goal of having at least 2,000 drivers when it launches, it will be the largest worker cooperative in Colorado, Xi says. In employee-owned workers' cooperatives, the workers typically form a board of directors, made up of employees who are voted on by the staffers. From there, the board can hire others to run the company who are experts in finance, management, or other specific skills that they may not have themselves. Employee-owned companies provide many advantages, Xi says. It's a better democratic place for people to be at, she points out. They can actually have better pay plus a better working environment. It's kind of a win-win situation for both employers and employees. To join the driver's co-op, Drivers will pay a $100 buy-in and complete an orientation to be sure they understand how the company works and the responsibilities of partial ownership. Unlike Uber and Lyft, the amount of profit the co-op takes in from each ride will be set at an 80-20 ratio, 
with the driver themselves taking 80% and the other 20% going to the co-op to hire staff and pay operating costs. Xi says the system will improve opportunities for people who may not have as many options for work, such as people from other countries. In the Denver metro, 75% of Uber drivers are immigrants. A lot of Americans will have choices, Xi says. Maybe it doesn't work and you could just give up and move on to something else, but a lot of workers, they're stuck with Uber and they have no other way out of it. Denver will be the second city to launch such a model, with a driver's co-op launching in New York City in 2021. In New York, the co-op started with pre-planned trips only by contact contracting with the MTA's Access a Ride program to help drive people to non-emergency medical appointments. Now it's adding on-demand rideshare for anyone at any time. Overall, the New York co-op has delivered $5 million to its drivers since kicking off in 2021, Xi says. It raised about $1.7 million before launching. Denver, on the other hand, is a smaller city and the technology is already in development, so costs should be lower. Locals have already raised over $250,000 for the year, with some investors committing larger amounts over a three-year term. The Colorado Health Foundation has been the largest donor, with contributions also coming from Rose Community Foundation and the Denver Foundation. Raising capital isn't all the co-op wants to accomplish before it launches. It's also hoping to change state law that requires a $111,250 annual application fee for transportation network companies to receive a state permit to operate. That is too much burden for us, Xi says. Recently, the Drivers Co-op has worked with Senators Faith Winter and Robert Rodriguez to introduce SB 187, Public Utilities Commission Administrative Fee-Setting Transportation Services. Among other actions, the bill gives the Colorado Public Utilities Commission, which regulates rideshare companies, the authority to set fees governing transportation services in the state. That power currently sits with the legislature. Should the bill pass, the driver's co-op hopes the PUC will make its fee lower than the fee that Uber and Lyft have to pay. The bill will be heard in the Senate Transportation and Energy Committee on March 27th. At a March 19th organizing meeting, drivers said they planned to testify in support of the bill because they believe the state should be supporting drivers in their quest for fairness. Rodriguez is also sponsoring a bill supported by the driver's union that would increase transparency in gig work that is currently in the hands of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Though Xi describes the passage of the fee-changing bill as critical for the co-op, it is continuing to work toward its launch while waiting on the legislation. The company's app is currently in beta testing for the drivers to sign up, as the company hasn't been permitted for use by the public yet. The app can support workers to sign up as a potential member so that we can do a background check so that when we get permissions, we can actually start operating, Xi says. Over 70 drivers have signed up so far. Xi is working to expand the model to other cities after Denver, too, such as Atlanta, Las Vegas, and San Francisco. If it catches on, she hopes the program will ultimately represent a significant source of competition for Uber and Lyft. For now, she's just hoping that Denverites embrace it. 
Our drivers can be part of making history, she says. It's really exciting. Pinkerton Security Guards Coming Back to Denver by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. After city officials tried to run the famous Pinkerton agency out of town following a fatal shooting at a protest in October of 2020, the security agency is once again allowed to operate in Denver. On March 22nd, the Denver Department of Excise and Licenses issued Pinkerton Consulting and Investigations a security license that allows the company to employ security guards armed with firearms in the city. The license is valid until October 16th. This case will hopefully serve as a significant reminder to private security guard companies in Denver about the importance of only employing licensed guards, says Eric Escudero, a spokesperson for excise and licenses. The issuance of the security license comes in the aftermath of a lengthy administrative and legal battle between the city of Denver and Pinkerton that began with the shooting death of Lee Keltner in October of 2020. Keltner was protesting at a right-leaning Patriot Muster rally in Civic Center Park that was happening side-by-side with a counter-protest by leftist activists. As the event was winding down, Keltner slapped Matthew Doloff, a security guard providing security to a Nine News team, and sprayed mace at him. Doloff, who turned out to have been hired by a Pinkerton subcontractor to work the event for Nine News, shot and killed Keltner. Although he was charged with second-degree murder, Denver District Attorney Beth McCann dismissed the charge against Doloff in March of 2022 after her office concluded that the security guard, who didn't have a license at the time of the shooting, was acting in self-defense. After the shooting, the Department of Excise and Licenses issued an order to show cause as to why Pinkerton should not have its security license suspended or revoked. Initially, it looked like Pinkerton would be able to keep working in the Mile High City as the security agency and the Denver City Attorney's Office came to a settlement agreement. However, Ashley Kilroy, then Executive Director of Excise and Licenses, rejected the deal leading to a hearing in February of 2021. An administrative officer serving as the judge during that hearing concluded that Pinkerton's license should be suspended for six months for failure to comply with local laws and found that the company was also responsible for acts and omissions of the subcontractor that hired Doloff. By that point, the subcontractor, Jason Isborn, had already agreed to surrender his security license to excise and licenses. In June of that year, Kilroy accepted the findings of the hearing officer, but also decided that Pinkerton should lose its security license in Denver indefinitely. After that, Pinkerton appealed Kilroy's ruling in Denver District Court. In June of 2022, Judge David H. Goldberg ruled that Pinkerton could keep its security license overruling Kilroy's decision. The judge granted the appeal on narrow grounds, siding with Pinkerton based on its argument that a section of a Denver ordinance aimed at license suspension or revocation does not apply to the company, since the law states that any act or omission committed by an employee, agent, or independent contractor that occurs in the course of his or her employment 
agency, or contract with the licensee shall be imputed to the licensee or permittee for purposes of imposing any suspension, revocation, or other sanction on the licensee or permittee. If this ordinance section had simply stated his, it would have implied that the category included corporations, Goldberg determined. However, since the law instead uses his or her, it applies only to natural persons and was not applicable to Pinkerton, he ruled. Goldberg did not address the other arguments before him. The court finds and concludes that the director abused her discretion and Pinkerton's revocation is set aside and reversed, Goldberg wrote. But by the time the judge ruled, Pinkerton no longer had a valid security license in Denver, since it had expired just a few days after the October 2020 shooting. Given Goldberg's ruling, Pinkerton was allowed to reapply for a security license, ultimately resulting in the recent issuance of a new license. Individual security guards hired by Pinkerton to work in Denver will still need to be licensed by the City of Denver. The Department of Excise and Licenses complied with the judge's order and issued the private security guard employer license after the city received the required documentation from the applicant. As part of the licensing process, all private security guards in Denver are required to complete annual training, which can help prevent violent encounters and help private security guards achieve their most important mission, which is to serve as a deterrent to crime and report all illegal activity to police, Escudero says. Centennial pumps brakes on new pickleball courts over sound fears by Katie Cheshire. Pickleball mania is running wild in Colorado and across the country, prompting a very important question. How close do people really want to live to this loud-ass, incredibly popular sport? In many municipalities, officials admit that they aren't ready to embrace the pickle passion, and that was evident on March 21st at an hours-long Centennial City Council meeting at which a six-month moratorium was handed down for all pickleball court construction within 500 feet of any residence or area zoned as residential. Their reasoning? They're not prepared to deal with complaints over pickleball. This is something that suddenly came up for us, said Mayor Pro Tem Richard Holt at the Centennial meeting. Not only here, but also the metro area, and quite possibly Colorado, and even more dramatically across the country. We are tackling this issue right now. All eyes are on Centennial as far as what we do. Centennial, like many places, is attempting to figure out why some people absolutely loathe pickleball, while others are obsessed with it. The main issues for the sport have been related to its loud plastic balls and composite paddles, as well as its enthusiastic and vocal players. One woman from California got so mad about late-night pickleball players in her neighborhood that she sued the city of Newport Beach in 2021 for allowing the sport to cause her severe mental suffering, frustration, and anxiety. Feuds like this have been cropping up around the country ever since the 60-year-old sport was given new life during the pandemic. Centennial has only two permanent pickleball courts right now. Neil Marciniak, Director of Community and Economic Development for the city, told the crowd at Tuesday's meeting that he isn't aware of any noise complaints. 
Denver has heard them, though, causing the Department of Parks and Recreation to move pickleball courts away from residences as part of its plan to redevelop the sports courts at Congress Park. Centennial hopes it won't have to make revisions like that in the future, especially if it takes the time to study pickleball before more courts come to fruition. The city is better poised to be proactive instead of reactive when it comes to noise, Jill Hassman, senior assistant city attorney, said on March 21st. Though we only have two permanent courts now, the demand is massive to add so many more permanent courts. South Suburban Parks and Recreation, the park district for Centennial, completed a master plan update in 2022 to bring more pickleball courts to the area. However, now that city council members ushered in the moratorium, no courts can be proposed or constructed there until it is lifted. Marciniak said city staff decided to pump the brakes on building more courts because of evidence showing that pickleball and residential areas just don't get along, almost as though the two were Geminis and Scorpios of the sports developing world. The recommended ordinance in front of council for consideration tonight really presents you with two questions, Marciniak told council members before they voted. Whether to allow unregulated pickleball to be constructed within the city and accept the potential for consistent or reoccurring noise complaints and other impacts that may come along with it, versus taking a brief pause to study the issues and possibly regulate to limit those noise complaints and other potential impacts that may come along with pickleball courts. Now that the moratorium has passed, city officials will work with stakeholders to study pickleball and develop a set of regulations related to the sport. Currently, Centennial City codes don't address noise or construction specifications for pickleball courts. Citizens came out on Tuesday to alternately bash and so show support for the pickleball moratorium, with over 20 people serving up v verbal volleys. In this day and age, we'd be remiss not to help individuals explore fun and creative ways of getting exercise outdoors, said resident Stephanie Samaras. However, providing multiple outdoor pickleball courts in a social venue will do nothing but harm the community long term. This will not be only a weekend annoyance for the surrounding communities, but also unsettling for those working from home during the weekdays. The residents who support the pickleball proposal tended to follow Samaris's line of thinking. The noise could create rifts between those who play and people who live nearby, and it's worth taking the time to find strategies to mitigate those problems. I really didn't hear any downside to the moratorium, said Davida Wright Galvin. People can still find other ways to play pickleball. It still exists, so there's no harm caused by the moratorium. Wright Galvin asked if people would want courts by their houses. Saturday morning is what I'm thinking about, because I like to sleep with my windows open, she declared passionately. On the other side, some avid picklers were horrified at the thought that the sport won't be able to develop in Centennial for six months. I'm 74 years old, said resident Ron Morin. Pickleball is the only sport that I'm aware of that kids from 5 to people that are 85 can play. In the end, the council voted 8 to 1 in favor of the moratorium. Council member Candace Moon was the only one to vote no, saying she thinks it's clear the problem is with noise regulation rather than pickleball. 
I looked at this ordinance that we're considering, and I told staff it just hit me all wrong, she said. We're missing the mark. We should be talking about noise. I almost blame myself for missing the boat, because I should have picked up on that we are not addressing our noise issue here in the city. Moon noted how land development codes in the city haven't been revised since 2005, and she'd like to see the city look into the noise ordinance overall, rather than take away from the warm summer months when pickleball is most popular. Do we really want to take a band-aid approach, which I believe this ordinance does in looking specifically at one cause of noise, Moon said, or do we need to sit down and rewrite our noise ordinance in our land development code? The other council members all expressed that they aren't against pickleball, with council member Christine Sweetland even sharing that she's paying for her child to take a pickleball elective at college, but they agreed that more information was needed to move forward. Based on what we've learned tonight, I think a moratorium is appropriate, said council member Mike Sutherland. There are so many loose ends that have not been tied up in terms of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable for pickleball courts that are close to residential areas. Sutherland added that Centennial has a history of being proactive as a city, and getting regulations in place prior to court development would help the city avoid a hodgepodge of different regulations for different courts. We're a community of neighborhoods, Sweetland said. We should be a community of neighborhoods that work together. And this feels like it could easily drive a wedge if we don't have some good parameters put into place. The council hopes that with the time a moratorium on pickleball court development gives to create those parameters, Centennial's residents will be able to focus on their drop shots rather than spats over pickleball noise. Lotus Drummer and His Son Feared Dead in Kayaking Tragedy, Band says, by Emily Ferguson and Chris Perez. Chuck Morris, percussionist for the Colorado-based jam band Lotus, disappeared with his son last week during a kayaking trip in Arkansas and is now presumed dead, the band says. Morris, 47, and his 20-year-old son, Charlie, were paddling around Beaver Lake near Fayetteville on March 16th as part of a family spring break excursion before they both vanished, according to local police officials. They went kayaking at about 11 a.m. that Thursday and were expected to return home around 2 p.m., a relative says. Authorities tell Westward that the weather was terrible that day. There were thunderstorms and high winds, says Lieutenant Shannon Jenkins, spokesperson for the Benton County Sheriff's Office. At some point, it all started coming through while they were out on the lake, and it wasn't a great day to begin with. According to Jenkins, Deputies were able to recover one of the kayaks that the two were using later in the evening and the other on Friday morning, along with a jacket that one of them was wearing. Morris and Charlie were described as being pretty strong swimmers by family members. They loved the water, the outdoors, Jenkins adds. Lotus, which has ties to Pennsylvania and regularly plays at Red Rocks, announced on March 17th through its social media platforms that the father and son were missing and that a search was being conducted. On Tuesday, March 21st, those efforts turned into a recovery. We were all hoping for a miracle, but at this point, the search for Chuck and Charlie has moved to a recovery, the band rope wrote. With help from the K-9 team, there is a probable location on the lake, but logistical challenges, including temperature, weather, and depth, have prevented a recovery thus far.
It is unknown how long these efforts may take. Thank you to all who have reached out with fond words, stories, emotional and financial support. High winds and below freezing temperatures at the lake from Thursday to Friday were said to have hindered and delayed search efforts for Morris and Charlie. Police officials told Westward that the recovery, which includes the use of sonar, would likely be scaled back significantly on Wednesday, March 22nd, if no progress was made Tuesday. Jennifer Thompson, Morris's wife and Charlie's mother, held out hope on Saturday, March 18th, that they'd be found alive when speaking with local Fox affiliate KNWA. I'm just hoping that people pray in whatever way that means for them to bring our loved ones back to us. Chuck and Charlie, the loves of my life, Thompson says. The band has directed its followers to support the Morris family through a GoFundMe. Lotus is meant to begin a tour starting March 31st at the Resonant Suwannee Music Festival in Live Oak, Florida, with at least one stop in Rye, Colorado, for Sonic Bloom on June 16th. The band's members have yet to make any statements regarding changes to their upcoming schedule, but they did say online that they are planning to celebrate Morris and Charlie in some way. There were no further details. While we are deeply grieving, we plan to celebrate Chuck and Charlie's lives, our memories with them, and what they meant to so many people, Lotus said. In a follow-up statement, Morris's bandmates honored him with kind words of their own. We spent over 20 years in a band with Chuck, said bassist Jesse Miller. We lived together for parts of that, traveled the country and across oceans, felt the joy of performing in front of thousands of fans and pains of sleeping on floors and trying to repair a broken trailer in the middle of nowhere in a snowstorm. It was a journey, and it wouldn't have been the same without Chuck bringing his unique mind, energy, spirit, and smile to it. Guitarist and keyboard player Luke Miller said, Chuck was a beast on percussion and in life. He brought an energy every night that fed so many people's souls. Fellow percussionist Mike Greenfeld remembered Morris as his drumming brother. He said, Over the past few days, I've been listening to a few recent shows when Chuck and I explored rhythmic banter together in exciting and unhinged ways. The profound level of connection that we had could only be manifested through years of touring and living together. Over the past two decades, we have watched each other's families grow. Chuck, you are a wonderful father and friend. I will always treasure our time together. We went to the new Frozen Dead Guy days, and it was hot, by Helen Shu. For longtime Frozen Dead Guy Day devotees, this past weekend was a test. Could the quirky, weird festival inspired by a cryogenically frozen dead guy maintain its scrappy spirit after its move to Estes Park? Frozen Dead Guy Days is a beloved 20-year-old tradition that was first put on in 2002 by the Netherlands Area Chamber of Commerce to attract more tourists to the town during its historically low, slow months. The name was an homage to Bretto Morstol, known affectionately as Grandpa Bretto, who was the town's cryogenically frozen resident. Over the years, FDGD became wildly popular, attracting more than 20,000 attendees during the 2022 festival weekend and earning the ire of the town's government and its residents. But given its free admission and mounting size and cost, FDGD co-owner Sarah Mosley-Martin announced that the 2023 event would be canceled. 
The next day, she received a text from John Cullen, owner of the historic Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, who was interested in buying the festival. Cullen made good on the deal and partnered with Visit Estes Park to throw the festival from March 17th through March 19th around the Stanley and Estes Park events complex. Some hardcore FDGD fans grumbled that the festival was selling out, incensed by the previously free event now costing roughly $50 per ticket, and vowed not to attend this new iteration. Even so, the festival sold all 500 tickets for Friday night's Royal Blue Ball and drew thousands of attendees to its Saturday festivities. Many people purchased day of tickets, and the line to enter the festival grounds sometimes snaked a quarter mile down the streets, with people waiting 45 to 60 minutes just to enter. The biggest complaints heard throughout the events were about the corresponding long lines for beer, porta potties, and even the merch stand. But there was much to entertain people while they waited, with more than 10 food stands, an all-day lineup of activities, including the frozen t-shirt contest, a brain freeze ice cream eating contest, Newly Dead, a play on the Newlywed game, and a frostbite fashion show, and three music venues with acts such as the Kyle Hollingsworth Band, Break Science, AMAC and the Height, and Grateful Dead cover band Shakedown Street. For many longtime participants, the crowds were nothing compared to those of previous years, and everyone we spoke with complimented Estes Park on the organization and professionalism it brought to the proceedings. You know what? I have to say I came up here with a bit of an attitude, but I love it so much. It's been the best year yet, said Kendra Slater, a member of the Denver Hearse Association who brought one of her hearses to the festival. Look at all the space we have for these hearses. We didn't have a hearse parade this year, but next year I'm sure they'll make it happen. Netherland residents Karen and Kurt Litchfuss agreed. Their longtime FDGD attendees and their absolutely killer outfits meant that they were stopped every 10 feet for a photo opportunity with visitors. I think they're rocking it, Karen said. Absolutely. It's a great venue. It's a beautiful location. The Royal Blue Ball, formerly the Blue Ball, held the night before was out of this world, she added, because it's just the atmosphere in the ballroom. The tent has a different vibe, but it was beautiful, and the Polish ambassadors were amazing, and a lot of people dress up. Some balanced appreciation for the new structure and organization with bittersweet nostalgic memories about the tiny festival that could. This is a lot different, but the spirit's still here. The energy's still here, John Hedgepath said. Looking back to when the festival was still in Netherland, there was more of a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants grit to it, he observed. There was a bit more of that Ned magic that really made it. The festival that got noticed, that started as just a silly thing 20-something years ago and turned into a phenomenon that they talk about on The Tonight Show. And Hedgepath would know. He's been the MC for the FDGD coffin races for the better part of a decade and was able to return to that role in Estes Park, along with another longtime MC. Stephanie Aldeman. The coffin races were definitely the star attraction of the festival, with many participants saying that was what they came for. The organizers devoted a large section at the entrance to the coffin race obstacle course, which included a hill for the corpses to run up, 
limbo sticks, and a required switcheroo of pallbearers. The atmosphere was less intense competition and more. How ridiculous is this? The MCs for the event kept up a constant commentary, often heckling and lightheartedly teasing the participants. In one memorable moment, when the best in snow team's coffin disintegrated and broke into pieces before it even hit the first obstacle, Hedgepeth joked that the group was being put down by its competitors. As a consolation prize, the team ultimately won the prize for most notable wipeout, which came with free beer. Chaotic and manic at times, the coffin races were the greatest example of how FDGD has cleaned up. It used to be much, much more rough around the edges. A bunch of mud, snow, people hucking ice balls at you while you're running, said a racer from a former winning team, feeling naughty. It was like you're running over these slushy ice berms, and then you had to do dizzy bat, and then you were these hay bales to hurdle as you were running down the course, and then a big stretch of just fucking gross mud. Even so, he admitted he missed the grim and grit of the Netherlands FDGD and hopes Estes can bring more of that in future years. A racer from the champion team Rain Bros, Luke Troutwine, doesn't miss the grim. Estes is doing such a great job, super organized and very family friendly, he said. The coffin race is one of those things where you do it and at the end I say to myself, I will never do this again. But this is the first year at Estes, so we're like, we've got to do this again. And that was exactly what these organizers wanted to do. Encourage good, clean fun and discourage the type of behavior that one participant described, described as follows. We're mostly here to do a bunch of coke and blackout, and yeah, we'll see how that goes. The event was full of security, and EMTs roamed the event at the ready. However, that partying participant was very much in the minority. When asked toward the end of the night, the EMTs commented that it had been a quiet, slow day with only minor incidents of public intoxication, something that used to be quite common at the Netherlands FDGD. And although Grandpa Bredo was not an attendee this year, the frozen body is still in Netherlands. It's probably just a matter of time. Colin has t met twice with Bredo's grandson, Trigvi Boge, and festival organizers say that negotiations with the family are ongoing, as there is the challenge of safely and legally transporting a cryogenically frozen body from a tough shed in Netherlands to an ancient ice house in Estes. Cullen is willing to go quite far with his, with his enticements to Bredo's family, however, and perhaps next year, Frozen Dead Guy Days will be reunited with its Frozen Dead Guy. A Top Chef alum is bringing Church and Union to the Mile High by Kristen Pazulski. On the heels of the news about one of Portland, Oregon's hottest chefs, Carlo Lamagna, bringing a second location of his Filipino concept to Rhino next year, Another big-name chef from out-of-state is making moves in the Mile High. The upscale restaurant, Church and Union, will open a location at 1433 17th Street later this year, an arrival we've been anticipating since 2021. It'll be the fourth outpost of the concept developed by South Carolina-based 5th Street Group, which has opened Church and Unions in North and South Carolina as well as Tennessee over the past decade. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at 
www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.